We're often told that the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4 was a sinner and an adulteress, but what are we missing in the story? And what difference does our interpretation of this passage make for women and men in the church? Hi, and welcome back to the God Story podcast. I'm Brent Siddle, and I'm joined today by our very special guest, Karen Reader, who's just published a new book with InterVarsity Press, IVP America, called The Samaritan Woman's Story, Reconsidering John Chapter 4 After Church 2. Karen is Professor of New Testament and Coordinator of the Gender Studies Program at Westmont College, and Karen joins me now from the States. Hi, Karen, how are you? Hi, I'm very well. Thank you so much for the invitation to this oh, conversation. It's a pleasure to try and set this lady's story right after so many years. Yes, yes, and absolutely. We've heard a lot in New Zealand about the Me Too movement in the States, mm. and it's been here too, but less, I suspect, about the mm-hmm. Church Too movement. Now, what is the Church Too movement, please? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So when actresses, waitresses, politicians started talking about experiences of sexual assault and harassment in their jobs in public in um, the fall of 2017, it wasn't too long before actually people in the church started sharing their own stories of harassment, assault, and abuse within Christian contexts. And the church to hashtag, like the me too hashtag was formed to give those people a place to collect their stories and to share their stories and make them public. So the church to movement starting in um, November of 2017, has been, well, I would say a heartbreaking, um, as heartbreaking as the Me Too movement is for me as a member of the church, it's been even more heartbreaking to hear that the church is not a place of safety for all people. And women and some men as well have told their stories of being groomed by older people in the church, um, being, some of it is very sort of prosaic daily harassment, but some of it is really serious allegations of assault and, and something I think that the church needs to take seriously as we seek to be a better community, a better representation of the kingdom of God for all people. Absolutely, for sure. Yeah. Mm. Now, why has the church seen so much abusive behavior mm. over the years? Mm. I mean, we've had it on all in New Zealand, we've had cases mm-hmm. and investigations, but why, mm-hmm. why, what has created this, this climate apparently of abuse? Yeah, it's a hard question to answer. Because of course, if you go back to the New Testament and how the New Testament speaks to the way that we treat each other and look at each other, um, in terms of sexuality, it's very clear that we need to control ourselves, right? Jesus says, if you look at someone else with lust in your heart, that is your sin and you need to take care of your own sin. But somehow over the years of interpretation, um, that message has gotten twisted. And so um, the people that you're looking at have become the problem. So for instance, with the um, stumbling stone passages, right? The stumbling stone there is is the person's own sin in the way that they're looking at another Christian. But that's too often become the woman is the stumbling stone and her body, her voice, her presence in the church is a temptation to men and therefore she must be controlled. And I think that shift of seeing the woman as the problem, as the source of temptation has actually had a lot of carry-on effects. Um, and this started as early as the second century. So it's not a new problem for the church. This is a long-lived problem. But I think that um, 
when we start sexualizing women, then it becomes all too easy to only see them as sexual objects rather than as full equal participants in the kingdom of God. And and the problem has gone back to our our interpretation of Eve. I had this conversation with someone, another guest the other day Mm -hmm, that probably mm -hmm. gets the blame for it when Adam is the the one who's supposed to be looking after the situation and doesn't. Yeah, a longstanding issue, I think, that shows how deeply embedded we are as Christians in the world around us, which often has not regarded women very highly. And we have carried that over the cultural constraints into our Christian communities. Um, I think as well, the hypersexualization that we see in society around us today, especially where I am in California, but I think around the world as well, um, that also carries over into the church and and it affects the way that we look at each other and the way we treat each other. Has this often been a lot about a bunch of men with too much power for their own mm-hmm. good? Sometimes, yes, I do think that that is an issue. I wouldn't say that's always the case, but I do think that, yeah, in some of the really famous cases that have happened over the past few years, I think it has been an issue where particular men were given way too much authority with no check over their own power and no mentorship to question them, no um, no systems in place within the church to protect those under their care. Now, let's come on to John chapter mm. four and this mm-hmm. lady who I think has been misinterpreted for centuries, really, the Samaritan woman, who I think is a mm-hmm. glorious character. But why have interpretations of John four so often been focused on her apparent sexual sin? Mm. Yeah, I think that this, this is um, exactly the connection I see with the church two movement, that when we start looking at women as sexual objects, and sexualizing women, um, we start doing it to women in scripture too. And I think that the fact that Jesus mentions this woman's marital history, and that it is quite an unusual marital history, we have to admit that, uh, that becomes the focus for all of our interpretation. It doesn't just happen with the Samaritan woman. We can see the same things happening with interpretation of Mary Magdalene, the woman who anoints Jesus' feet in Luke chapter 7. There are just so many cases where women's stories are read through the lens of their sexuality, and that becomes the overriding issue for interpretation. And that has definitely happened in the case of John 4. How much can we learn about the Samaritan woman's background from Mm -hmm. the actual passage? Mm, Not very much, to be honest. It leaves a lot of questions for us. So we don't know why she's going to the well to draw water herself. Does that possibly mean that she is from a less well-off household, a household that didn't have servants or slaves, enslaved people to send for water? Maybe. We can learn that she's had a really interesting marital history, but we don't know why her five marriages ended. It's certainly possible that some of her husbands had died. That was often the case with, um, there were extreme differences between the ages of women and men and their first marriages, especially in the ancient world. It could be because of divorce, but that happened for multiple reasons in the ancient world. It could have been, in fact, that the woman's own family, her father, wanted her to divorce one husband in order to make a more um, strong alliance for their household with another household through marriage. It could be that she was abandoned by her husband's And that was also something that happened in the ancient world. We don't know why she was living in her sixth relationship without the legal right of marriage either. Um, It was certainly the case that 
the right to marry was very strictly regulated in the Roman world. And that could have affected this woman's ability to marry. It could be that she was in a relationship with someone who did not have the legal right to marry. Yes. I want to come and just unpack some of this history because mm-hmm. I found this mm-hmm. absolutely fascinating mm-hmm. in, in your book, particularly the, the length of marriages in the mm-hmm. Roman empire. Now, how long was a typical marriage? How long did a typical marriage last in the first century yeah. Roman Empire? Yeah, so looking at uh, marriage documents, at divorce agreements, and also primarily at tombstones and um, the epitaphs on tombstones, we think probably about 15 years was as long as a marriage would last. And so that's not very long, actually. And that's because of uh, people live short lives or much yes. shorter lives. And, and yeah. husbands, men would die, presumably in mm-hmm, war. Mm-hmm. Yeah, war or injury, illness, accident. And of course, many cases, it was the women who died in childbirth, particularly. There are so many tragic, tragic funeral epitaphs for women who died in childbirth. I wonder how widespread divorce was in the Mm. Roman Empire. It was very common. So um, divorce was not seen as morally problematic in the Roman Empire, the way it sometimes is today within Christian communities in particular. Um, It was pretty common. And I think that the commonality of divorce reflects a very different approach to what marriage was for and what it meant in the ancient world. Today, so I teach undergraduate students, and when I hear them talking about marriage, it's this hope of living the rest of your life with your best friend and having this deep romantic relationship, that was not what people got married for in the first century. They got married to bring their household economic benefits from an alliance with another household, uh, to bring political advantages or to raise their social status. So women were married um, as ways to connect communities together. And that meant that divorce didn't necessarily happen In fact, it rarely happened because people just couldn't get along with each other or their life plans diverged or something like that. They got divorced because there were better options on the table for one or the other of the partners. A more advantageous relationship could be met. Yes, marriage is more like a business arrangement. Absolutely. What happens in Jane Austen, really, with Mm -hmm, Mrs. mm -hmm. Bennett marrying off the poor old daughters for financial interests and security. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Would the woman have cohabited with each husband necessarily? Possibly not. So it is possible that perhaps she had a serious engagement, um, a betrothal that ended before the two married officially and lived together. Women could be young, very young girls could enter into betrothals um, or their families would betroth them to another household, but not all of those betrothals ended in marriage. So it's possible that one or even two of her first husbands never actually lived with her in a family household. And she may have been married very young. I mean, yes. how young were, yeah. were women married in those days? The age of 12, 13? Maybe? Yes. Yeah. Age? We have records of girls as young as age 11, even being married. Um, oh. Most girls probably by by the age of 15, they would definitely be betrothed to someone and probably already married. 
Mm. Um, so she may very well have married at the age of 12 and the five husbands have died of mm -hmm. whatever causes. Uh, yeah. And, and it's necessary for her to remarry in order to survive in a yes. um, sort of male centric society. Absolutely. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's the historical background. So mm -hmm. what actually happens, walk us through what actually happens in John chapter four and this mm -hmm. very special interaction between the Lord Jesus and this special lady, really? Yeah. Yeah. So Jesus and his disciples have been in Jerusalem for Passover. So the great festival celebrating Israel's salvation from Egypt, they're on their way home to Galilee. And John tells us they had to go through Samaria which geographically, it was definitely the easiest route to take. But often in the first century, Jews would go around Samaria rather than through Samaria, simply because there were tensions between the Jewish community in Judea and Galilee and the Samaritan community. But Jesus had to go through Samaria and he sits down by a well to rest. While he's sitting there, his disciples go off to buy food in the village and a woman from the village comes out to the well to draw water. Jesus asks her for a drink, and that sparks the longest conversation between two characters in the Gospel of John. And I think that's something we really need to pay attention to in this story. Very often in John's Gospel, Jesus will start a conversation with someone, but then it turns into a long sermon from Jesus. We see that, for instance, in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. They have a couple of short exchanges, but then suddenly we have Jesus preaching a sermon and Nicodemus kind of disappears in the story. But the Samaritan woman really holds her own through the entire conversation. Mm -hmm. um, she contributes to the story. She moves the conversation forward with her questions and responses to Jesus. And in the course of this conversation, Jesus makes some pretty big revelations to this woman. So she's the first person in John's gospel to hear Jesus say, I am in reference to himself. Later in John, we get that um, very clearly Jesus saying, I am before Abraham was, I am, is a declaration of his identity um, as God. And the Samaritan woman is the first person to be told, I am <laughs> in John's gospel. She, through their conversation, realizes his, who he is. She starts out by saying, you're a Jew. And then when he tells her that, he tells her her, her marital history, she says, oh, you're a prophet. So let me bring this big question, the burning question of the divide between the Jews and Samaritans to you. And then when he responds to that question, she says, huh, I'm, the Messiah, maybe? Is that what's going on here? And Jesus says, I am. <laughs> She's far brighter than the disciples. The, yes. She gets it. Yeah, she gets it. She does. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, what is the significance of the well and the well mm. in biblical mm -hmm. history? Because that's a, a wrapped up in the whole background mm -hmm. of the passage, mm -hmm. isn't it? It is. Yeah. So this particular well that they're sitting by is identified as the well that Jacob dug um, and he and his sons drank from this well. That is tying this particular location to the first piece of the promised land that God's people owned to live on as a habitation. So in Genesis, Abraham, of course, bought a cave in order to bury the dead, but you can't live in a cave with the dead. So this piece of land in Shechem is the first piece of land that the Israelites owned. Uh, so it's kind of a down payment on the promised land. So that gives it some theological significance. It is an important space. 
but the Samaritans live there in the first century. So you can see that that could be an issue of tension between these two communities, Mm. both of whom are claiming to be the true people of God. So the Samaritan woman in this story really plays on that. Our father Jacob dug this well. He and his sons drink from it. You, a Jewish man, cannot be greater than our father Jacob, surely. Yeah, the location of the story really draws in that historical context of the division between the Jews and Samaritans. Absolutely. And and to what extent is this a passage about Jesus overcoming racial and sexual barriers? Absolutely. That's what it is. Uh, Jesus' great message to the Samaritan woman is it's not the Jews who are the people of God and it's not the Samaritans who are the people of God. The people of God are those who worship God in spirit and truth. So he is proclaiming a new way to be God's people. And he does this in a contested space with a, in a conversation with um, a woman from a different ethnic background. Um, I think that this story has so much to teach us about what it means to be the church and to be an inclusive community that is not divided by racial or ethnic or sexualized boundaries. Yes. Does she, does she become something of a model of discipleship? Mm-hmm. I think because so. Because of the way she yeah. responds? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So through her conversation with Jesus, she slowly comes to a greater understanding of who he is. That is a model that we find through John's gospel. This often happens with people in interacting with Jesus and John's gospel. Um, at the end of her story, she goes back to her village and tells them, I think maybe the Messiah may be at our village well, and everyone in the village comes out to meet Jesus. The people's response to the woman in that scene is, we believed because of your word, as well as because of his word. So the woman's word is equated with Jesus' word as reason for the villagers' belief. So she's not only a model disciple, she's also a model evangelist. Um, in a world where women's testimony would have not been considered to be mm-hmm. being terribly important. Yes, yes. Um, and that fact that the villagers listen to her immediately and respect her word, I think that that also helps us see that she's a respectable person in her village. She is someone who people listen to, even though she's a woman, even though she has this very strange marital history, a very unusual marital history. Um, people respect her and they listen to her and they believe because of her. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus doesn't condemn her or make any mm-hmm. comment about the, necessarily about the number of husbands? No, he's just mentioning it as a fact that he knows. So, yeah, the word sin doesn't come up in John 4, which is really remarkable that we've made that the issue <laughs> that this story must be about. Yeah, well, well, let's come on in the last part of the interview to talk about the, the early church and mm-hmm. still the current fixation with this. Mm-hmm. With this. Whenever we hear this account, it's always mm-hmm. the old Samaritan woman gets, gets uh, mm-hmm. called out about all this. How did much of the early church interpret this passage? So the earliest interpretations we have of the story, the earliest one comes from Tertullian in the late second, early third century. And he already called her an adulteress and a prostitute. So this is a long history of interpretation here that goes right back to the very first interpretations of her story. For Tertullian, the issue really was she's been married too many times. He thought you should, yeah, he thought you should only have have one marriage and that's it for your life. So the fact that she had been remarried so many times really bothered him. And he needed to explain how can she have this conversation with Jesus 
and be such an important figure. And yet (laughs) she's been married multiple times. His answer was, well, she hadn't met Jesus yet, so it was okay. (laughs) Yeah. To what extent did some of some of the early church fathers really misunderstand sex and sexuality? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You get the feeling oh, yes. they, were bit, they were prejudiced before we even got started. Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. Tertullian was uh, pretty critical of sexual intercourse, even between a legitimately married husband and wife. He thought that it weakened your Christian discipline, um, and that message pretty much played out through the entire early church. It wasn't until relatively recently in the history of the church that sex within marriage started to be seen as a good thing and a way to celebrate God, which is interesting to think about, yeah. It, it is. It's, it's extraordinary. Anyway, mm-hmm. But to what extent are contemporary preachers and commentators still fixated on this issue 2,000 years later? Oh, my goodness. So I did a review of about... 40 to 50 different sermons, Bible studies, blog posts on the Samaritan woman story in the church today. And that was mostly limited to the North American context, but I, almost all of them still continue to fixate on the woman's sexuality and condemn her as a sexual sinner. And the story becomes a message that you too can be saved from your sexual sin, just like the Samaritan woman. It's not um, the point of the passage, I would have thought. It's not the point of the passage, no. <laughs> it is not at all what this story is about. And therefore, we're missing the Samaritan woman as a model for discipleship and evangelism and leadership in the community. Yes, well, that leads us back to the Church Two movement, doesn't it? Mm-hmm, Where we started, mm-hmm. because how does our interpretation of women, like the Samaritan woman in the Bible, flow over into mm-hmm. our treatment of women in the church? I think it does um, in very serious ways. So, I would see an interaction between the sexualization of women in society as a whole, and the way that that has also carried over into the church, and the way that we sexualize women in our biblical interpretation. The way that we read the Bible doesn't just matter for our theology or for our biblical interpretation itself, but it also matters for the way that we start looking at each other in the church. The imagination we can have for what different people can contribute to a church community. If we read women in scripture, like the Samaritan woman, um, only through the lens of sex and marriage and sexual sin, then we start carrying that over to the way that we look at women in our churches. And so I would say that, yeah, the way that we read the Bible has very practical consequences for the treatment of women in the church. There's a question that one pastor who's written extensively on the church to movement, she, Ruth Everhart is her name, and she wrote this question in her book on the church to movement that just continues to haunt me. And the question is, I wonder if the young man who raped a particular woman um, in a Christian church during a church service, I wonder if he had been taught to read scripture to make women rapeable. And that question, oh, it is a heart-rending question, and one I think we need to take really seriously. Our biblical interpretation matters for the way that we see women in the church and the way that we treat women in the church. Mm. One last question, because I've often Mm. wondered this. I don't know what the answer is. It's interesting we're told the number of husbands, six Mm. effectively, which begs the question, if Jesus is the ideal bridegroom, is Jesus going to be her seventh and ideal? <laughs> yeah. Even the whole creation week theology mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm, going on mm-hmm, in those early mm-hmm. chapters of John. I yes. can't imagine that John wouldn't have 
maybe mm-hmm. been thinking mm-hmm. something like that. But. Oh, I think so. Definitely. Um, the end of chapter three, in fact, John the Baptist has this conversation with his disciples about he's not the bridegroom. He's waiting for the bridegroom. He's oh, yeah. the friend of the bridegroom. And then here comes Jesus walking along and sitting down by a well, which is the place in the Bible where you pick up a wife, right? <laughs> Yes, Jacob pic- got his wife at a well. Yes. Yes, that's <laughs> yeah, Moses got a wife at a well. So yep. hmm, the bridegroom is here at the well. I think that's what's happening too. So Karen, thank you so much uh, for this uh, wonderful interview. And the her book, Karen Reader's new book with IVP into Varsity Press America is called The Samaritan Woman's Story, Reconsidering John 4 After Church 2. And if you read it, which I hope you do, you will never see this account the same way again. And Karen, thank you so much for your time. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge, who sponsor the podcast and take care of things behind the scenes. Karen, thank you so much. Thank you very much. I've loved being in the conversation with you. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com.